You know, children often have a simplistic but not always accurate view of life. One of my favorite stories to illustrate this uh, was told by a friend in the construction industry. He wanted to take his son with him, kind of out for the day on the job site, took him out, big commercial job that he was doing. son was about six years old, seven years old at the time. He said, and as he was walking around the job site, there was dump trucks and graders. There was all kind of things going on. And he was telling him, he said, you got to be careful. When you hear the trucks back up, you'll hear a beep, you know, be always alert, be watching what's going on. Make sure that you pay attention. So they had a great time together. About noon, they went to the bank. They want to make a bank deposit. And as they get in the line at the bank, right immediately in front of them is a rather large, full-figured woman who works for UPS or Federal Express or some carrier uh, service. And um, as uh, she's standing there, he has a very unique vantage point being about this tall. So he says to his dad, Dad, look how big her bottom is. Real loud. And, and the dad's like freaking out, going, oh, no, 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 no. He said, look how big her legs are, Dad. Just look at all. I mean, and, and, and just as he's trying to explain, that's not nice. Don't say that. Her pager goes off. He hears beep, 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 beep. And he yells at the top of his voice, look out, Dad. She's backing up. I was going to save it for Mother's Day, but I thought I'd just go ahead and throw it out today. Well, aren't you glad I didn't? All right. Sometimes an inaccurate worldview can be funny or embarrassing, but most often it can lead to disastrous results. You know, until September 11th, many adults in our country had a, a similar naive view of the world. You know, seeing things through the distorted lens of moral relativism many could no longer see clearly the reality of evil in our world. Lost was the clear teaching of right and wrong and good and evil. You know, there are always pockets of society who had never forgotten or lost sight of the fact that evil exists. Immediately coming to mind are those involved in law enforcement who deal on a daily basis regularly with criminals who break the law or the standards of society. A friend of ours is an emergency room physician. I can remember him telling us numerous occasions how tirelessly they work and the hours that are put in trying to patch the broken bodies of victims of serious crimes. And then on a regular basis, we're reminded today of our military and intelligence agencies who risk their lives so that you and I can enjoy our freedom. Yes, evil is alive and well. And to stick one's head in the sand to hide from the problem will not make it disappear. You know, God is not passive towards evil or evildoers. He dealt a fatal blow to the devil and to evil when he sent his son into the world. The Bible tells us that there would be a day that would come where Satan would bruise his heel, but the Savior would deal a fatal blow to his head. And on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, he dealt the final fatal blow to Satan. And we know from 1 Corinthians 15, oh, death, where is your sting? Our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished that, conquering sin and conquering death. And as he was raised three days later in victory, we know that we have victory through the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is now no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And yet the battle against evil is not over. We know that the war has been won, but the skirmishes continue on a daily basis. And we're kind of in what I would call God's mop-up phase. Whereas we get to know God personally through faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing our sin and repenting and turning from it and turning to God and responding with faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross and the power of His resurrection... We know that God is not passive towards evil or evildoers. And the Apostle Paul, a man who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, was not passive towards evil or evildoers either. And if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 19. For as we'll see in this passage, defeating the forces of evil requires action on the part of God's people. And in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 19... We find a very powerful section of scripture 
that helps us to see that Paul's approach to defeating the forces of evil was an approach that is equally applicable today. As I mentioned, it's kind of God's mop-up plan that we're to be involved in on a daily basis. The war has already been won, but there are battles that are taking place on a regular basis. In Acts 19, we read these words starting with verse 8. And he, speaking of the Apostle Paul, entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and, out, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus. And I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and founded 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. You may recall from our last message that Ephesus' strategic position made her what was called the treasure house of all of Asia and the mother of materialism and ambition. She was the site of the temple of Artemis or Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and 127 marbled pillars rose 50 to 60 feet into the sky to uphold a gorgeous ceiling, many of them inlaid with gold and rare gems. The temple's huge canopy covered an area 425 feet in length and 200 feet in width, and it was housed with this multi-breasted image of Diana, supposed to have fallen from the heavens. This temple was the center of a thriving cult of fertility worship. And Ephesus became, as a result, a collecting place for superstition and for the dark arts. It was a cesspool of the occult. And aware of this, Paul wrote to the Ephesians these words when he said, For our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesus was a waterhole to every kind of witch witchcraft, magician, clairvoyant, criminal, con artist, murderer, and pervert that you could find in one culture. And it was to this darkness that Paul would be light and bring light and also bring insight as to how you and I could be used mightily by God to defort the forces of evil in our society as well. And so as we look at this, there's three truths that will emerge. The first thing that stood out as I was going through it was the fact that in order to defeat evil, one must have the courage to attack it. The courage to attack. You cannot defeat evil by sitting around and, as so often happens in, in many cases, putting your head in the ground or putting your head in the sand and burying it and hoping that it's really not going on around us. There are many in the world today who would rather ignore it. And we see that even today in, in, in all the events that have transpired in the last several months. We've seen the evil hearts and the evil intentions of men who are bent on destroying others for no reason other than their own agenda. And yet there are still those who will protest that somehow or another that this isn't really evil and it's really not the intention. It happened all throughout Europe when Hitler first came to power. Many ignored him and ignored his uh, evil intentions. And they buried their head in the sand. Even godly people, supposed godly people, who allowed those atrocities to take place around them. Because, you know, man can't be that evil. And yet the biblical worldview is very clear. There are none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The hearts of men are, the hearts of men are evil. 
and wicked and deceitful above all else. And who can understand it? But God can. And he tells us exactly, exactly what we're dealing with when it comes to the sin nature of man. The first thing that we notice in order to defeat the forces of evil, we've got to have the courage to attack. You know, Paul didn't sit around feeling sorry for himself as he found himself surrounded by the evil of the city of Ephesus. He didn't sit around going, oh, Lord, come back and get me out of this mess. He didn't sit around saying, well, you know what, it's really not that bad. He took it all in and he looked around and he thought, man, you know what, how am I going to, one person, how am I going to make a difference in a society like this? And you know what he came to realize? He came to realize his his attack on the evil powers of Ephesus began with the aggressive teaching of the Word of God. For it is truth that sets people free from the powers of darkness. The truth of the Word of God. It began with an aggressive teaching, if you've got your Bibles, notice. And he entered the synagogue, as was his uh, continual practice. He went into the synagogue hoping to reach those Jews who were truly seeking truth, truly seeking God, truly seeking the Savior of the world. He went there first, as was his custom, to reach those whom he believed would be seeking God. And he was there, continued, and notice what it says, he continued speaking... He continued speaking. You know, if you'll recall, not long before that, if you got your Bibles open in chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, remember that as Paul got to Corinth, another city just infiltrated with evil, that he had gotten to the point where he had gotten to be afraid to speak and to open his mouth and declare the truth of God because of the opposition that continually arose. It was the illustration that I gave of a football. Yay, you scored a touchdown. Bad news, you scored a touchdown. You're going to get spiked into the ground or thrown into the stands. See, he knew what to expect when the word of God was taught and people came to faith in Christ. It turned their world upside down. And as a result, opposition arose and he began to become afraid to continue to speak. Perhaps you have been there. You've shared the gospel in your place of employment. You've shared the gospel in your home. You've shared your go- the gospel in the, your community. You've shared the gospel with a friend. And immediately opposition arose to where now you've become afraid to say anything any longer because you're afraid of those results. But notice what God said to Paul. He said, the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, chapter 18, verse 9, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent which is exactly the temptation or our tendency. He says, For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he said, I have many people yet to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that they could believe and receive him as their Savior. To continue speaking. You know, it was Paul who later encouraged Timothy to not be timid, or afraid, for God has given his people a spirit of power and love and of discipline. He also told them to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. How do we, how do we attack evil in our culture? We preach the word in season and out with great patience, notice, instruction to reprove, rebuke, exhort. The point is very clear. The sword of the Spirit is still the Word of God, God's appointed weapon of choice for defeating the forces of evil in any culture at any time. I realize that it's not Father's Day, but I want to take a moment to address the men. As I read through the Bible, I cannot help but notice that God uses men of courage who are mighty in the Scriptures, filled and led by the Holy Spirit, to defeat the forces of evil. One such example is found in the book of Joshua. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. For there are great similarities and parallels between what we're reading in the book of Acts and what we find here in Joshua. See, Joshua, who was taking over for Moses, had mistakenly come to believe that he could not succeed Moses. And so he had gotten afraid. But just as he later did with Paul... God tells Joshua in Joshua 1, starting with verse 5, he says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, so shall I be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. 
Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. If God is for us, who can be against us? Joshua, like Paul, like many of us, have gotten to be afraid of the evil around us. And as a result, as Jesus said, if we're not light and we're not salt, we've effectively become useless and will be trampled under feet by those around us. Be strong and courageous. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. How many passages and verses immediately come to mind as those words were spoken? Go into all the world, making disciples and baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do not be afraid to speak. Do not be afraid to go on. For I am with you. No one can touch you because I am the one who determines whether that's the case or not. And if it is in my will... And if it's in my timing that it's your time to, your point of time to leave this earth, then guess what? It's going to happen no matter what, because I've appointed it. Before there was yet a hair on your head, before you've let, lived a day, I have known every day that you shall live. So why are you afraid? Be not fearful, be not dismayed, for I am your God. And he goes on to say, I am with you wherever you go. The key to godly success the key to defeating the forces of evil in our world today are for God's people to proclaim the word of God, for God's people to know the word of God, and for God's people to be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Live it. Know it first, then live it. Too many of us have become as men spiritual pansies. The world needs more godly men. Men who aren't trying to get in touch with their feminine side. All right? I mean, listen to me. My wife is my feminine side. Right? I mean, as long as I'm in touch with her, you know, as long as I relate to her, as long as I love her as Christ loved the church, as long as I love her sacrificially, as long as I protect her and keep her as God has ordained that I should as her husband, as long as I'm in touch with her, I am in touch with my feminine side. Otherwise, I wouldn't dress the way I do. It's not to say we shouldn't be sensitive, that we shouldn't be gentle, that we shouldn't, you know, that we should be brutal or arrogant or chauvinistic or any of those things. But what I'm trying to get across is this. Where are the men who lead their families by godly examples, servant leaders, men like Joshua with backbone, who boldly and courageously say, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. It's about time that you and I as men step to the plate and be used by God in a mighty and powerful way to, defort the, to defeat the forces of evil that surround us. That is our calling. That is our responsibility. Let's get busy and let's get it done. You know, you can't read through Scripture without seeing such godly role models. Abraham, a man who left his comfort zone to go to a place he had never been because God said, trust me and follow me and I will lead you throughout the days of your life. And he picked up, he packed his bags and he went. Men like Moses who we are told that when he finally grew up, when he became a mature man, when he put aside, as Paul says, childish things and began to act like a man of God, 
He left the, the temporary pleasures of Egypt behind and all the comforts that were there to follow God's leading and his calling because he was looking for a city whose architect was God who had built that for him in the future and that's where he was heading. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on to what lies ahead in the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting the past, I look forward to the future. Men like Joshua that we just read who trusted God and said, as for me and my house, brother, we're going to serve the Lord. Daniel and his companions who were men, young men of courage and non-compromise and said, no matter what our fate is, we will never, ever bow down before your God. Peter, imprisoned often. History tells us that he was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner of his Lord. Men like James, who was beheaded, and Stephen, who was stoned to death, and as he looked into the very presence of God, said, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. Men like Apollos, who we read, a man who was mighty in the scriptures, or Aquila, a true Christian businessman. The Ethiopian eunuch, who had the boldness in front of everyone to say, hey, I've come to faith in Christ. What prevents me now from being baptized at that stream? Paul, a man who continued speaking boldly. The question that I have for each of us is this. Is that true of our life? Do you continue to speak boldly? Or have you ever spoken at all? See, he continued speaking, but he also continued speaking boldly, reasoning and persuading. Reasoning and persuading happens, has to do with the idea of dialogue. Communicating to the point where even if it's one-on-one or in front of a large group, he was willing to say, do you have any questions that I can answer? Some of us can't speak boldly because we wouldn't know. We'd get stumped at the first question. It'd throw us through a loop and would feel foolish and ignorant. And as a result, there's no boldness that can, can accompany, accompany a person who doesn't know what they're talking about. I mean, only an idiot continues to talk about something in which he doesn't know what he's saying. And so therefore, if we don't know what we believe or why we would believe, we don't say anything to anyone because we're afraid they're going to ask us a tough question. We need to be prepared for the questions, ready to give an answer, defense for the hope that is within us. And that doesn't happen by accident. It happens by effort. It happens by picking up the Word of God and reading it and studying it and spending time with God in prayer and alone with Him. It happens by picking up books that you can have access to. Last couple of weeks we were on vacation. I read two great books, excellent books, on defending your faith. A Case for Christ and A Case for Faith. A case for faith takes eight questions, typical questions that people would argue with you to say, hey, why is it that you believe what you believe? And to be able to defend your faith in such a way that's validated from Scripture. Josh McDowell, excellent material, more than a carpenter, evidence that demands a verdict, more evidence that demands a verdict. Why we believe, why I believe, what to believe in the Christian faith. Go to, a, hey, men, go to a Christian bookstore. They exist? Yes, they exist. Well, I go in, I, I, I'm telling you just a fact. Every time I go into a Christian bookstore, I'll bet you I'm outnumbered by women 10 to 1. Single guys, go to a Christian bookstore. <laughs> Looking for a godly woman, that's where you need to go. Huh? Amen? Ladies. <laughs> Spend some time. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. So that you can reason and persuade. What did he talk about? Golf, his handicap, business investments, real estate transactions. That's all important. And I know I'm in the business world like all the rest of you. Trying to make a living for my family. But you know what? Let me tell you something. We need to spend a little bit more time talking about the kingdom of God. Because the real estate deal will fade away. The investments will fade away. Jesus said, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither thieves break in or steal nor can rust and moth destroy. Have an eternal perspective. Use the platform that God has given you and the people who brings into your life to be able to talk to them about the kingdom of God. 
And the kingdom of God is more than just when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and establishes his earthly kingdom, thousand-year kingdom here on this earth, although that's part of it. But the kingdom of God entails all of the kingdom of God, telling people about sin, telling people about judgment, telling people about condemnation and judgment before God, telling people that they're lost and there's none righteous, no, not one, and helping to illustrate that just in the standards of God and help them to understand what the world does not understand, that we are all guilty and hopeless and lost and condemned and on our way to hell outside of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to explain that to people they don't know. They don't understand. For so long they've bought into the lie. But I'm a good person. Compared to that person, I'm a great person. Compared to that person, I'm a so-so okay person. But, you know, compared to everybody, I think I'm in the middle. I'm going to be okay. You're not. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That so whomever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it. This world has been condemned already. He sent him to save us from our sin and save us from the condemnation of God. There is now no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To those who are outside of Christ, still guilty, still condemned. We need saved. We need a savior. He reasoned with them, persuaded them concerning the kingdom of God. And you know what? As so often will happen, not everybody was excited to hear that. They didn't like that. I like believing I'm okay because I'm pretty comfortable living without having to answer to any heavenly divine authority. I will create a God whom I can feel comfortable with. I will visit him when it's convenient for 40 minutes or an hour at church every now and then. Sometimes saving it for the big ones. But for the most part, he can stay where he is, where I've left him, so that I can continue to live any way that I want during the course of the week. And what happens is, and what happened here and always happens, is that, but, notice in verse 9, when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude. I want you to understand the terms hardened and disobedient. Some of the Jews became hardened and disobedient and began speaking evil of the way before the multitude. The word hardened always refers to a heart who is hardened against God. And the, pro- and the hardening was a process. For three months they heard him declare about the kingdom of God. And for a period of time they may have been softened towards it. They have may, may have been open towards it. They may be interested in listening more and hearing more. But over a period of time, as they continue to reject, continue to reject, continue to reject, a hardening or process took place to where they no longer would hear the word, but they actually then became aggressive enemies of the message. When the truth is rejected repeatedly, it hardens the heart and the message of salvation becomes an aroma from death to death. Their refusal to repent and believe the gospel is classified as disobedience in the word of God. And those who are disobedient, because the command is what? God has revealed to all men, as Paul said in the city of Athens. God has revealed once and for all to all men that it is the will of God that all men, what? Repent. Repent. Turn from sin and turn to God. And when people hear that message and continue to reject it, a hardening takes place to where they can no longer respond. They became aggressive enemies of the cause of Christ and and began to blaspheme the very way of God. Have you ever spoken to, and this will help help you understand it, have you ever spoken to someone, maybe a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a co-worker, over a long period of time telling them about the kingdom of God, the things of God, the truth of sin, the truth of judgment, uh, the reality of the gospel, that if we would turn from sin and turn to God, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, that we would be saved. Have you ever noticed a person whom you've been sharing this for a long time, it seems like the longer that you share with it, the less they understand it. It's like, at first, there was such great hope. You're like, wow, you know what? They're so close. And yet they continue to reject and reject and reject. And you go, how can they get so much further away? That's exactly how. The longer you reject the grace of God, and the 
longer that you stick your own fingers in your ear, there's a point where you can no longer hear it. Silly illustration that I thought of the other day as I was studying this passage is like a parent who is, is yelling for his child or her child who runs out into the street and says, Stop! Don't go that way. Stop and turn and come back. And that child begins to laugh and to run and think it's some kind of a game and continues to run further and further away. The further that child runs, the less audible your voice becomes to them to the point where if they go far enough, they can't even hear you yell any longer. See, God loves people and he sent Christ to seek and to save those who were lost. But there's a point that comes where he can't even get a hold of you any longer. And the Bible says there's also a point where then God seals us over. There will be no one in hell who has any excuse before God because those who seek him shall find him for he is not far from any of us. So if we look at this and understand this, Paul said that they began hardened. Notice that they are speaking evil of the way. It was an early term for specifically definite article, the, the way, the way of God, the way of Christ, the way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the early believers were called followers of the way. Can you say, where are you going? Can you show us the way? The only way to get to heaven is by recognizing your sin and repenting, turning from it, and believing and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, the power of His resurrection on your behalf. That is God's way. So as they went through it, it says that He withdrew from there. Notice what it says. He withdrew and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, I like that. Tyrannus is an interesting name. Um, concerning this, one, one commentator writes, since it is difficult, except in certain bleak moments of childhood or parenthood, to think of any parent naming his or her child Tyrant, the name must have been a nickname given to him by his students. The guy's name was Our Tyrant. How'd you like to have him as a teacher? Ah, <laughs> oh, man, I gotta go to the Tyrant's class. I'll see you in a couple hours if I survive. Well, the Tyrant rented out his, his classroom to the Apostle Paul. Now, on the surface, this move to the halls of Tyrannus don't, doesn't seem very significant, but I, w- I want you to see the change shows that Paul's aggressiveness and determination in, a, in assaulting the forces of evil. You will not listen here? Then I'm going to go over here. And I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to preach the, the word boldly. I'm going to reason and persuade daily. And man, I tell you what, the only way we're going to attack evil in this community is by a healthy dose, a steady dose, a consistent dose, a regular dose, a passionate dose of the Word of God. Because the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, sharper than any two-edged sword, man. It's even sharper than a sword, and it's going to reach people, and it's going to touch hearts, and it's going to evict people of sin and righteousness and judgment. And coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit, it is God's chosen way to reach people that are lost and on their way to hell. So he went there, and notice what it says. What's interesting about this is the workday was, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I believe, the workday was from 7 in the morning till 11 o'clock in the morning. Okay, from 11 then till 4 was this period of time where the Apostle Paul taught in the halls or the school or the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now that means for those, that particular period of time, from 11 to 4, he taught the Word of God. Then from 4 to 9.30, he went back to working, the leather working and in the, in the job that he did. And in uh, Acts 20, 34, it says, You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs. So he worked. But if you look at the amount of time, he paid his own way. He taught five hours a day. Listen carefully. Six days a week, 52 weeks a year, for two years straight, 3,120 hours of lecture. That's equivalent to 130 days of lecturing continuously about the kingdom of God for 24 hours a day. 3,120 hours, and that's about what our study in the book of Acts will be. (laughs) Just for some of you who are wondering when we're going to move to something else. We're always in a hurry, but you know what? There's so much depth, we got time. All right, so here's what we do. So, you know, when you think about it, that's how convinced he was of the power of the word coupled with the presence of the Spirit to transform evildoers of God. We cannot change people from the outside. Only God can change people from within. I spent enough time going to juvenile hall and to prison facility to know that, you know what? Putting people behind bars doesn't change their heart. In fact, sometimes it even accelerates the evil that's in their hearts. 
Only the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ can transform a heart. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away and all things become new. And notice the, revol- the results that were here. And this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Can you imagine? Everybody heard. You know, it's interesting. I often have people come to me and say, well, Chuck, what about people who haven't heard? The only reason they haven't heard is because we haven't done what God has called us to do, and that is to go into all the world and tell people. If people in your office haven't heard, that's because you haven't told them. If people in your family haven't heard, it's because you haven't told them. In our neighborhoods and communities, it's because we haven't told them. When Paul told them, everybody heard. And the wonderful thing about God is is that he will never lose one who is his by you and I being disobedient, but you and I will be accountable before the judgment seat of Christ for the lack of trusting God to be obedient to his plan. God will not lose one who is his. He will make sure he sends an obedient messenger to share the gospel to those whom he knows are his so that they can trust in Christ for the culmination of their faith. And that's important to recognize and understand. But it does not eliminate the responsibility on our part, human responsibility, of sharing the gospel with the people God brings in our life. It's so important that we understand that. Now, notice what happens here. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Now, this is really important to understand. When you talk about miracles in Scripture, notice it said that extraordinary miracles were taking place here. God reached these people on the level in which they were. They were occultists, they were magicians, uh, they were clairvoyant, they were into the occult or black magic. And so God used a method to reach them. We need to recognize and understand the purpose of miracles were always threefold. Number one, it was to show compassion and meet human needs. Number two, it was to teach spiritual truth. And from Jesus' standpoint, it was also to preserve those credentials that he was truly the savior of the world. When the savior came, he would do certain things that were unheard of throughout human history to validate or authenticate his claims that he was indeed the Christ, the son of the son of God, the holy one who came into the world. Now, also, apostles were given a divine uh, affirmation, so to speak, so that those in their time in that society would recognize that they were actually messengers from God. And we'll be able to explain that here in a second when we go through it. But you'll notice that the conflict that we're going to see always takes place. The courage to attack always leads to a conflict to expect. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. I'm amazed at how many Christians, they begin to share the gospel and all of a sudden conflict arises and they go, Oh, I wasn't ready for that. Well, why not? You won't find anywhere in Scripture that when the gospel is preached that there isn't conflict. There's always conflict. There's always opposition. There's always a force of evil that want to stop that which God is trying to get across. But as we look at this, there's several things that stand out. Number one, look at verses 13 through 16. Notice, but. So there's contrast already taking place. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered and said, I recognize Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? Now, I like that because what we're, we're seeing here is that it talks about exorcists and, and we can get into you know, a whole thing on exorcism and things like that. But let me just give you a couple brief overviews as far as Scripture is concerned. Number one is that you'll never find anywhere in Scripture where a believer, because this will always be taught in past tense, where a believer is to ever try to exorcise a demon out of an unbeliever. Can't happen. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can do that if he chooses to do that when he transforms a human heart because, you know, a a, a demon and the Spirit of God can't take up residence in the same place. What fellowship does darkness have with light? 2 Corinthians. So, you know, just a quick overview is that and God never encourages a believer to confront the forces of evil in such a way. In fact, even Michael, the archangel, did not confront Satan and allow that to be... That's God's territory. And we'll see why in a second. 
So if we look at this, it says that they attempted to do something that they weren't in a position to be able to do. They were like Simon Magnus, who thought the power of the Spirit that was operative in the apostles was no more than their own fakery or some foolishness or demonic activity or something they could buy. It's like, hey, teach us that trick, and we're willing to pay for it. And so they attempted to do it. Now notice what it said is that they attempted to do something, and the demon recognized, recognized Paul... And the Lord Jesus Christ, but didn't recognize these other people. In Luke chapter 4, 31 through 35, listen to this. There was a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, oh, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had been thrown down in their midst, he came out of him without doing any harm. This demon, aware of his fate, eternal destruction, in the lake of fire, the demon fearfully asked if this was the time and if Jesus was going to destroy him on the spot. I find it very interesting that through the centuries, men have debated the identity of Jesus Christ, and yet the demons have no such doubts as to who he is. The fallen angels knew that he was in the presence of the Holy One of God. And the Bible says that even the demons believe and yet shudder at their final outcome. Men debate who Jesus is, and yet all the universe is not confused in the least. He recognized the Lord Jesus Christ as the ultimate authority. Jesus extended the same power to his apostles so that they would know that they were sent in his name. But by the time that the book of Hebrews was written, this was all spoken of in past tense. Notice in Hebrews 2, 3 through 4, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders, by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. They knew that Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ because God had given him the authority in the name of the Lord to do the same types of deeds that they marveled at. Who is this man who has ultimate authority that even the demons will listen to him? They recognized going back to Acts, but notice this. He said, who are you? <clears throat> and I like this. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them subdued all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. How's that for a word picture? <laughs> huh? Is that beautiful or what? It's like, hey, don't be using the name of the Lord Jesus if you don't know him personally. Think of the accountability that many will have who have used the name of the Lord and never have known him. But Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And they say, be gone from me, for I never knew you. Using the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most precious name ever to, give, to be given to anyone throughout all of history. is an abomination and blasphemy before God. And God does not hold that lightly. But will hold people in great contempt. Because of his obedience. His obedience appointed, uh, to the point of death. Even death upon a cross. He was highly exalted. And given a name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus every person. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. They overpowered, this demon overpowered these seven guys, beat them up silly, and sent them running naked out of the house. And you know what? And we'll close on this, but you can't help but notice this. When the word of God is proclaimed, you can't help but notice there is conviction that occurs. There is conviction that occurs. Man, this story was known to everybody. Can you imagine? I was like, hey, hey, did you see those seven naked guys running down the street? Did you see those guys trying to imitate the things of God? Did you see those guys use the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that obviously God did not like? And he made a tremendous statement. Did you see that? God isn't messing around. And they were all like examining themselves. And a healthy fear came over all of them. And this became known to all Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. A name given above all other names. 
highly exalted name. There is no other name such as Jesus. And that's why the world will profane that name because they do not know who he is. Before coming to faith in Christ, I can remember times where I used the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in vain. Just in conversation, you hear it all the time. And yet he's been given that name, a glorious name. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which men can be saved. And all heard and all feared and fear fell upon them. I'm so tired of people saying, you don't have to fear God. Are you nuts? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear God. Not because he's inconsistent, not because he's unpredictable, not because you don't know what he's going to do, but you know who he is. Why do you fear men, Jesus said? Don't fear men. All they can do is kill you. Fear God, who can destroy both your body and your soul in the lake of fire. Fear God. And yet God says, fear not, for I am with you. It's a beautiful picture of our relationship with God. Though I travel through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. The name of the Lord was magnified. And notice the result. Those who began to examine themselves, and many of those, notice, many also of those who had believed kept coming. These were believers. And they hadn't cleaned their closets of their past life. Many who had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ kept coming, kept confessing, kept disclosing their practices. They were saying, hey, I got dirt in my closet. I got sin in my camp. My tent is dirty before God. I need to clean it up. And God has made me aware of it. And I know, and you know, as we sit here today, that many of us have dirt in our closet. We have sin in our camp. We've hidden it in an area of our life and think that it's okay, it'll stay there, it won't affect us. And the reason we can't defeat the the forces of evil in our culture is because in many ways we are just as guilty. When the word of God is preached and proclaimed, there's reproof, there's rebuke, there's correction, but there's training in righteousness, how to live right before God. Examine your heart. Examine yourself. Ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you what it is in your life that's dirty before God. And trust that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's time that the house of God cleans up after itself so that we can be light. We can be salt. So many of us in our hypocrisy of the way we live totally neutralize or even defeat the cause of Christ and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When people say, well, if you're a Christian, I must be one too. We're all at the same place. We're all doing the same stuff. What do you have to offer me? And many of us don't know because we haven't spent any time with the Lord and studying His Word and knowing what we believe and why. Many who had believed Many of those who continued to practice magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and founded 50,000 pieces of silver. They didn't count the costs of what it would be to be obedient to God. They said, I can't live in sin anymore and I want to be clear and clear conscience before God. And they start bringing, hey, you know what? There's a whole bunch of junk in some of our houses that, you know, maybe we need to bring them in the sight of all and just burn them. You know what I'm saying? Why don't we clean it out? Take it out to the dumpster, the trash. Do it today. Maybe we need to block off some of the TV channels that come into our home or some of the things that we're looking at over the Internet. Maybe it's time we clean up our act. Many who had believed kept coming, kept confessing, kept, <laughs> kept you know, exclaiming what it was that they needed to be freed from. And you know what's interesting is the amount of silver, 50,000 pieces of silver, was 150 men working for a year is how much junk that they had in their lives. That's how much money they had invested in the things that were contrary to the Word of God. At 30,000 a year, 150 people, that's $4.5 million of junk. And they said, but you know what? We must obey God. 
and they brought it and they burned it. They burned it and they did it in the sight of all. Let me close with a parable that I think ties everything together. Flying northward across Europe with his friends one spring, a certain duck landed in a Danish barnyard where there were tame ducks. Enjoying some of their corn, he stayed for an hour, then a day, then a week, then a month. Finally, relishing the good fare and safety of the barnyard, he stayed all summer. One autumn, when his wild duck friends were winging their way southward again, they passed over the barnyard, and the duck heard their cries. He felt the thrill of joy and delight, and with a great flapping of wings, he rose in the air to join his old comrades in their flight. But he found that his good fare had made him soft and heavy, and he could rise no higher than the eaves of the barn. So he dropped back again to the barnyard and said to himself, Oh, well, you know, my life is safe here. The food is good. And every spring and autumn when he heard the wild ducks honking, his eyes would gleam for a moment and he would begin to flap his wings. But finally the day came when the wild ducks flew overhead and uttered their cry, but he paid not the slightest attention to them at all. If God is calling us, whether for salvation or for increased service, by all means we must respond now. For today is the day of the Lord. Perhaps he is asking us to say, you know what, God, I'm willing to spend whatever you want me to spend. And I'm willing to expend whatever energy that I have for the kingdom of God. Perhaps he's calling us to lay aside some personal goals, some entertainments, or even some vices. And we must respond and do so today by saying, yes, Lord, here am I, send me. Father, thank you for the power of your word, for the courage to attack the evil forces that are around us, knowing that the war has already been won as the Lord Jesus Christ dealt a fatal blow to the head of Satan on the cross. And through his substitutionary death for those who believe and receive him as Lord and Savior, believing in his death on the cross and believing in the power of his resurrection, we have been saved. As children of God, may we become sanctified or separated according to your word because your word is truth. May we have courage to continue to go on speaking, reasoning, and persuading those around us as to the kingdom of God and the truth about sin and judgment and righteousness and the hope that is found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the only Lord and only Savior the world will ever know. God, help us to be people who are educated in what we believe, to know what we believe, know why we believe, to know when we believe. God, help us not to be deceived by the enemy who wants to confuse us in those areas. But as the Apostle Paul was used mightily by God to defeat the the forces of evil in Ephesus, we realize historically that the seven churches in Revelation were founded during this time of his preaching and boldly speaking of the things of God. And that many who had believed were convicted of sin in their life. And, and, And as they were convicted of sin, they were corrected and they confessed their sin. God, I pray that that is true of each and every one of us who have come to faith, that we would confess our sin knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that the word of God as it's preached with boldness and conviction will lead to such conviction of the heart and the Holy Spirit will teach us the things of the Lord and also convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that we have the freedom because of men and women who are fighting to maintain that freedom for us even at this moment the freedom to be able to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to a fallen world. And we thank you in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen.